there's a huge difference in using screens for creating and using screens for consumption. So if you if your kid sits there on an app all day long, you know, mindlessly tapping at something or swiping at something, that's really negative screen time. Yeah, that's just them sitting there consuming the, the devices, basically controlling them. They're the zombieing out. Whereas if you look at in schools in particular, they have to use it in schools for something creative. They're either creating documents, creating presentations, creating folders and collaborating on work, sharing folders, uh, right down to creating animations, coding. Uh, so they're using it for for creative purposes and not for uh, not for consumption. So that's that is the biggest key differentiator. Welcome to the Digital Irish Podcast, a podcast all about Irish innovation. This podcast interviews entrepreneurs, investors, creators, global leaders, talks to them about what they're working on right now and what we can learn from their experiences. This podcast is brought to you by the Digital Irish Network, a not-for-profit organization which aims to highlight Irish innovation all over the world. I'm your host, Dave Byrne. In the last episode of the Digital Irish podcast, I spoke to Johnny Cosgrove from Meeting Room about what the future of collaboration in the workplace looks like post-COVID. If you haven't listened to it, I encourage you to go back and take a listen. However, with COVID-19, so many more questions have been raised than just what does collaboration look like. Questions such as how are we handling employee well-being in this new world that we live in? There's also questions of what happens to all of this real estate? If the office is truly not the central hub for business, how does that change things? Expanding beyond real estate, what does that do for some of the supporting elements that are there for employees, such as parking around offices. It's also raised a lot of questions about how are we handling children at school and making sure that they have the right education and the right skills to adapt to this new environment where many of the jobs that they may be going for in the future could be 100% remote and require technical skills. We're gonna start answering some of these questions and we're gonna start with the education question. I spoke to Gavin Malloy, who is a co-founder of Olus Education. This is a group who support two key areas. Number one, core digital skills in primary and secondary schools. And secondly, advanced digital learning and computer science skills at home as an extracurricular activity. I couldn't think of anybody better to talk about the question of how are we supporting education and children in adapting to this new world and making sure that they have the right skills to be prepared for a digital first future. In the next few episodes, we'll start answering some of these other questions, but for now, hope you enjoy this one. Gavin Malloy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining today. Thank you very much for having me, Dave. So I want to start off very simply with a little bit of history about Olus, because Olus is a merger between Cocoon Education and the Academy of Code. Could you tell us a little about these? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So we officially became Olus in August this year after uh, quite a few months doing the, the formal merger. Uh, Cocoon is my own company originally. 
and I set that up is primarily an online company for training teachers, for gave them training documents, training schedules, lesson plans, tools for assessments, all this kind of stuff. But it's all online working with teachers. The Academy of Code were primarily offline. And as the name may suggest, they focus largely on code, uh, the coding side of digital learning. Uh, they've built up a 10-year program from age seven up to university or, or like uh, or, or industry standard level of computer science. So it's fantastic stuff. And because they're largely offline, they had um, built up quite a large staff and quite a, quite a solid staff infrastructure. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, coming together for us, what it's... Like we're always very much more than the sum of its parts because you bring our our largely online business together with this largely offline. What it does is their strong staff infrastructure, first of all, gave what was Cocoon the ability to jump up the next level in our online stuff. At the same time, we now have the uh, the 10-year coding program in the arsenal as well, so to speak. And by coming together, we were able to build a brand new student portal so kids can actually learn themselves in classroom, even if they have a teacher who isn't so confident with technology. And that, I guess, is the real, you know, is the real game changer for us and something that really um, that came from the merger. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been really cool. And, yeah, some really exciting times ahead. And I love the name Olus uh, for this kind of merger of these these two organizations. So for those who may not be as familiar with the Irish language, uh, could you give us like a quick explanation of the, the name itself? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, firstly, names, as you may know, <laughs> they can take a bit of time to pick one. And um, so when we settled at Olus, we were, yeah, we were really happy with this. Uh, and it comes from, I mean, the name always had to mean something to us. Um, and one of the big things with Olus is actually in Irish, the Irish language, spelled differently it means knowledge so for us it was great to have something that says so much about what we do and who we are but also to have the roots in ireland in a global way so to have the irish word spelt phonetically for any english-speaking audience uh yeah it was that's that's where it came from and you know it's, it's nice to have that at the core of what we do I love that. And, you know, again, I think it just, it adds so much to to what you're trying to do and really gets out that global message. So uh, that's fantastic. And always love to see Irish roots within uh, within businesses as they start to grow as well. So and it's also easy to spell, which is nice. O-L-U-S. So when, you ask, when you're asking kids to log on to a website, our, our, our kids' website is just olus.app. So Easy to get, easy to get kids to log in, easy to get web addresses. And all these things need to be considered these days when you're picking a name. You can't go for long names anymore. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was good for that as well. Amazing. I was, I want to take you back though, because you mentioned that Cocoon Education was your organization before this merger with the Academy of Code. Uh, I'd love to take you back to what was the catalyst for you to build Cocoon? Like what was a what was the moment or the scenario that you found yourself in that made you want to take the step out onto online education? Yeah, so I mean, my own personal background is I started off actually my my first college degree was in was in multimedia. So I actually started off in working in TV before I moved into teaching. So I was a teacher. I taught in primary school here in Ireland. I taught over in the UK. And when I was in the UK, I moved into consultancy, working with um, at the time with the brand new computing curriculum was brought in, which is 
basically using IT in classes. And it was it was causing quite the hoo-ha. It still is um, everywhere in the world. But it, it, the opportunity there at the time, I moved into consultancy with uh, with the group there in South London. And we basically worked all over South London in, in a huge amount of schools there, uh, supporting the schools and how to use tech properly in, in, in classes. Now, I worked on literally every single level here from working with an individual teacher with their kids in the classroom, all the way up to working in whole boroughs. So boroughs are like uh, councils or districts. Uh, Working with whole boroughs and school leaderships would come along, head teachers, uh, computer coordinators would come in and we train them how to use technology properly. So I did this on every conceivable level and having come from a school background as well, where I had received training. After a while, as with a lot of these ideas and companies, it's born from frustration. You know, I uh, I was doing this, we're working with the schools, we're like, there has to be a better way that they can get a greater impact and we can make a bigger impact. You know, it just has to be a better way of doing it. So you could do the same training in the same school 10 times. And I know everyone knows the, the statistics on training and, and how quickly people forget the skills they learned. And especially do the same time with different teachers because teaching schedules are so difficult to get everyone together. And then you come back a month later and you've done it 10 times with 10 different teachers and most of them or all of them have forgotten everything you, you taught them. So it was just, it was born from frustration of that and wanting to give them more and knowing that we were hamstrung. It wasn't that we were, we couldn't, we couldn't do any better. We were doing all we could. So we're, we're like, okay. And they were using some resources. They would buy like PDFs, uh, banks of PDFs, some online resources that they could use for using computing. But a lot of these weren't very good or weren't very relevant to what the technology they had in the school or weren't relevant for lots of reasons. And again, we ended up kind of showing them how to use this stuff that was meant to show them how to use technology. So it just, it wasn't working very well. So for us, it was, okay, we need to have something online, uh, scalable, we can get out to a huge amount of people, actually gets the same job done, but they can do it at their own time uh, and do it a second, third time if the, if needs be, and then give them stuff to do afterwards. So if we show them how to use an app, for instance, give them the lessons to go and teach it for the next six weeks. So it was, it was, yeah, it, it, it came from frustration. It came from wanting to to just get more done and get more kids learning with technology, get more, getting more teachers confident with this. Uh, so it had to go online, and uh, yeah, that, that's that's where Cocoon came from. That, that's it, it's amazing to hear that it, how much of it was born from frustration um and you know because i'm kind of thinking about when i was in school myself there was little to no tech education whatsoever um i think only a small amount maybe came up in transition year as like a did you get a bbc computer uh i can't remember what i it was like <laughs> in primary school it was i do remember the course that was given in transition year was like the european driving license for computing um but it it, it sounds like in the last like 10 15 years uh that that not much has actually really changed in regards to the level of tech education for for schools and for teachers from what you're saying there. Huge amounts have changed in some ways. 
Uh, I mean, there's been, the governments have introduced various new curricula. Uh, there's been investment in, in infrastructure, albeit nowhere near enough in the majority of countries. You know, schools now have iPads and Chromebooks and laptops. Some have a lot more than others. So that is happening. But at the same time, it's not really happening quick enough. And I think you know, a stat I read recently is 82% of teachers either receive no technical training at all or say what they have received isn't good enough. And I think 80% as well of teachers at the start of school closures in the UK specifically said they weren't ready to teach to, to teach online, to teach any kind of digital curriculum. So it, that, that's the world we're living in. And, you know, COVID has massively been a leap forward in this for teachers because, you know, everyone had to go online. So technology has had to come to the forefront. But we, we still, we still have, have a long way to go. You know, and teachers... You know, if you're going to focus on them specifically, are doing a really great job and they have an extremely busy timetable. So, so they are doing fantastic. Uh, I just think there needs to be a lot more from government, from, from the private sector, really from everybody, from parents. Uh, we need to take this you know, a lot more seriously and make sure we are moving education along uh, with, with tech skills. So yeah, it, has moved, it has moved along. It has moved along, uh, but we've got a lot more to do. You mentioned the private sector there. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking, and I'm thinking specifically about Ireland right now, because obviously you have a lot of the major tech companies with their European headquarters based out of places like Dublin and Cork. How could the private sector and specifically these tech companies be supporting teachers uh, could they be helping reduce workload, making education more interactive? Like, what are the things that you'd like to see the private sector supporting with? Uh, I mean, I guess with, with, with there, are, there, are, there are limitations here, but if we look at more higher up along the food chain, is it like third level? Like Dyson created their own university. They were, they were so stuck for engineers. They were dealing with the government in the UK to the point where the education minister said, well, look, we can't change things for you, but you can create your own university. Boeing, likewise, Boeing is in aircraft, have um, partnerships with lots of third-level uh, institutions and secondary schools as well, where they provide engineering courses and that kind of stuff to schools. A lot of universities, to flip that around, are partnering with private sector as well, just to get advice and guidance. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's there's, there's definitely, like, there's limitations to what the, what what large tech companies like that can do, but I think looking at Dyson in particular and creating their own university, I think is probably the most tangible thing you can look at and say, okay, there actually is. I mean, because to to parallel step there for a second, we are looking at at the moment projections are for by twenty thirty to be a shortfall of eighty five million technical skilled workers in the world. That's going to cost the global economy eight point five trillion per annum. $8.5 trillion. So it's not just philanthropic from the likes of Dyson, it's a, it's necessity. You know, they are looking at this thinking, okay, we're not getting the engineers, we need the engineers, we have to train them ourselves. So, yeah, I mean, this is a, it's a multi-pronged approach. We, everybody knows how quickly the whole world is changing, so that's not just focus on education. The world is changing so quickly. Um, and for education to keep up, it's going to take... Uh, it's going to take a lot of effort from a lot of people. I want to just go back to that estimate that you gave there. What was that? $85 trillion? 
Uh, no, <laughs> it's, I know I get confused when you get all these zeros. Uh, 85, a shortfall of 85 million workers. And that's just in actual, not just, that's just in actual tech jobs. But then if you look at regular non-tech jobs, so to speak, I mean, what what doesn't involve tech anymore? I mean, whether you're a nurse or a, or a teacher as we're talking about now or whatever you're doing, odds are you're using some kind of technology for your admin or whatever. So 85 million people in the tech sector, and then there's everybody else outside the tech sector who need the technical skills and don't have them. And that's just focusing on the 85 million that's anticipated to cost the world economy $8.5 trillion per annum. Wow. Yeah, big numbers. This kind of education that you're working towards is, is truly vital for uh, the future of like global economies. Yeah, correct. I mean, I, I saw and shared a, a post by Craig Fenton from Google. Uh, he's at he is the head of strategy. I don't know. Anyway, he's a, he's a senior figure at Google. He put a post on LinkedIn recently saying that uh, he just commenting on the lack of intersection between what happens in schools and what Google actually need in, in graduates, what, what's what's coming to them. Yeah, look, it's it's beyond essential to, to the new jobs market. I mean, just the, the basic use of digital skills in, in average jobs uh, up the right to, to using like uh, high-level engineers, high-level tech skill workers coming out. Yeah, I mean the the what's the other stat? Eighty-five percent of jobs in twenty thirty haven't been invented yet. So I mean, like it's not just training people for specific roles. As I asked recently, it's more about creating more of a dynamic education system where you know we are training kids to use technology in a collaborative way. Um, and just be ready for what, whatever is ahead because no one knows what's coming up. So, but that, that but we can prepare for that by, by being more dynamic. So yes, um, yeah, we, 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 we desperately need schools to catch up and be using tech right across the curriculum as, as quick as possible. Now you probably have more questions about screen time, et cetera, coming up and don't worry, we, I'll, I'll, uh, we can chat about that because I'm not, I'm not, I'm also not, uh, not advocating that we just shove kids in front of the screens all day long. I think screens need need to be used cleverly, but it's it's the world we're in, and to go from you know age four to age seventeen or eighteen when you finish secondary school, with the equivalent of what you did in transition year, your your driver's license for using you know basic IT stuff, it's just not good enough. And uh, where any government that thinks it is is going to uh, it's going to see huge economic impacts in that country in the coming years so you've brought up two interesting points and I'll, I'll start with the first one that i want to start with was you mentioned making education more dynamic and it feels like with digital that there's potentially a huge opportunity to make it a more, more personal activity as well for people as they're as they're um learning about this like almost enabling uh, children and teenagers to build something that they want to build and learn in a way that they want to learn rather than just trying to give a one size fits all approach. Is that kind of some of the some of the objective of all this or some of what you're kind of suggesting that um, governments kind of work towards with education systems? Uh, in, in short, yes. I mean, if we take some of our schools who are, you know, really most of um, at the moment, I, I think we're all starting on this journey for the next hundred years because the, because the starting line changes every year. Um, but if you take some of our schools, 
like say for instance they learned in their we divide up terms into digital me creative media or digital literacy uh, for one term it for a term and coding for a term so perhaps one of our schools may have learned movie making or documentary making three years ago two years ago they learned how to make ebooks in the digital literacy term and maybe last year then they learned how to make podcasts now we move into our fourth year with that school we talk to them about say you're learning about the vikings so your teacher will have, even if you stick to a country that has a very strict curriculum, so say for history, and you have to have A, B, and C learning objective and, and curriculum criteria met, that's fine. You can still do this. So our schools will have, the teacher will have their learning objectives, we'll say for the Vikings, they have to learn about Viking clothing, Viking uh, when they arrived in the country, uh, what warfare was like, family life whatever it might be. And then you have a kid who's learned all these different technical skills, technical skills, and the teacher can say, right, guys, I want you to make a project about this. So in my day, that meant, could I picture the Vikings, stick them on a yellow piece of paper, stick that piece of yellow paper up on your wall, and everyone did the same thing. And then we could have one kid making a documentary, one kid making a podcast, one kid making an ebook, perhaps one kid making short little documentary snippets and putting them into an ebook and putting little podcast snippets into an ebook, you know, they can get very multimedia on it because they have those those skills. So even on a, a, mo a most simple level, like that kind of stuff is available right now to to uh, schools, you know, who have, have the level of skills that, that our schools have. Um, and yeah, and then you can move into more like more really loose curricula like the famous school called the Agora School in Netherlands, A-G-O-R-A, -A, uh, and they have no curriculum at all. Uh, I saw Rob Huber, I think his name is, speak. He's the manager of the school. He spoke at Google headquarters in London a few years ago when I was there. Uh, we're a Google partner. And um, he spoke with the school. It was just incredible. They have, they have no curriculum, they have, but they do do exams. Um, and I'm not an Agora school expert, so please don't grill me on it, but I'll give you an example. One I remember from him, because I, I, I tried to grill him, him on it, I was so fascinated. But he gave one example of uh, the kids' desks. They make their own desks. So you go in there, you will design your desk, art and design, you'll measure it up, maths, uh, and you'll build it, engineering. And then they build it, and that's their desk in, in the school. So like, there are models out there for how we can really get more flexible with this. And I think in the coming years, and, and obviously then we have to go a totally different direction. This last two years forced upon us. So uh, there are lots of things happening and happening pretty quickly. And you can you can see how, you know, the standard school may become a, a more and more difficult thing to, to explain what a standard school is in years to come. I mean, again, going back to our schools with the e-books and uh, podcasts and documentaries. They can then put them in in their in their e-portfolio. Go home and you know their dad can jump on Google Drive and their phone and pull up the e-book. You know, it's it's what they can do and how they can own their own learning. The opportunities are are incredible. That that's fascinating. I love I love the idea of like the just how much like kids can learn from building their own desks. That's uh, actually really fascinating. Um, it's funny as well because like I it, whenever I kind of think about I, I've worked in tech for many years and 
Um, you know, what's interesting is I've, I've seen a lot of tech companies have all of these kind of different environments where they try to create like, hey, here's like this shared meeting space so that you can all meet and collaborate and talk. Here's like... Uh, 20% time. So you can focus on something that you want to do at 20% of the time. It seems like that the private sector is already ahead of where we should be at with education with this idea of like fostering a environment where people can kind of almost choose their own destiny and, and kind of uh, learn and develop in their own ways uh, rather than just sticking to the same kind of script that everybody's sticking to, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it it, it does. Um, yeah, and it's, it, I mean, the well, the public sector in general, but we'll stick with schools. Is always going to be slower to catch up because it's just there's so much more. You know, if you own a company, getting profits from something, pretty obviously and immediately, and you can look at it on a quarterly basis. You can move your staff, you know, onto a new way of doing things. Whereas in schools, you've got you've got curricula, you've got exams, you've got training for teachers. So it's always going to be a lot slower. But I think the interesting thing with tech is because, you know, when tech is used properly, it's not and it's not always an independent subject. It should be used in all subjects. You know, it does, it does, I kind of, I guess, book the trend from that point of view that a school can very quickly you know, use technology in clever ways. You, know, you can very quickly show a kid how to make, say, uh, if you're a Google school, how to make a site in Google Sites and upload your work there and uh, collaborate there um, with other other students in your, in your class. So, yeah, I mean, because it doesn't involve changing anything too, too dramatic in terms of exams and that kind of stuff, yeah, you, you, can, you can quickly look to uh, new ways, new ways of learning. Um, I, it, it's always going to be a bit slower than, than the private sector, but definitely the opportunities are there. And I think the private sector always leads. So, so like you say, about 20% me time, that kind of stuff. I think like that kind of stuff, uh, certainly as it becomes more prover in the private sector, can will gradually start seeping into education. It would be great to see it. Absolutely. I, I want to go back to something else that you had said previously about uh, parents' concerns about screen time, because I imagine that there may be a, a parent or two listening to this that may be thinking, well, my son or daughter already uses screens all the time. It sounds like you're advocating for even more screen usage. Uh, <laughs> You're going to get me in trouble, Dave. <laughs> yeah, like, what, what would you kind of say to a parent who may be concerned about like the, the volume of time that somebody's using on screens? Yeah, I, I would say the first thing is that screen time has become a dirty word. Um, and the reason for that is the next thing I'm going to say is there's a huge difference in using screens for creating and using screens for consumption. So if you if your kid sits there on an app all day long, you know, mindlessly tapping at something or swiping at something, that's really negative screen time. You know, that's just them sitting there consuming the, the, the devices, basically controlling them, they're zombieing out. That, that's, sitting, that's sitting there consuming. Whereas if you look at in schools in particular, they have to use it in schools for something creative. They're either creating documents, creating presentations, creating folders and collaborating on work, sharing folders, uh, right down to creating animations, coding. Uh, so th they're using it for, for creative purposes and not for uh, not for consumption. So that's, that is the biggest key differentiator 
is what you're doing with the screen and is it a negative or not? Beyond that, I would say that even, even then, using the screen smartly often uh, this might sound self-contradictory, often can mean not using the screen. So say, for instance, we want to make a documentary in a class. So we want to make a documentary about, and that can be anything. It can be, they have to use it in schools for something creative. They're either creating documents, creating presentations, creating folders and collaborating on work, sharing folders, uh, right down to creating animations, coding, uh, so they're using it for for creative purposes and not for uh, not for consumption. So that's that is the biggest key differentiator in an intelligent way. And what's going to be the first part of a documentary? How do I build it right up to the finale of it? Um, so whatever subject it's going to be about, there's a lot of learning involved there. Uh, if I'm in primary school, let's stick with that for the moment. I'm going to, I can do art design by storyboarding my documentary. I can possibly create costumes for it. <clears throat> excuse me i can create costumes for us um and you know we can go right into the oral language side of things which is so big right now as well where they can spend a lot of time practicing their lines out loud rehearsing what they're going to say and only then at the end they actually pick up the camera or ipad or tablet and record it and edit it so there's so much they can do by using something relevant like a screen for them say, guys, we're going to make documentaries. And then they see, okay, this screen isn't just for looking at. I can do loads of stuff before I get near it, and then I can use it really, really, really intelligently and, and in a fun way. That's actually a great way of, of thinking about it. I, I, I imagine that just in what you're saying there of... Uh, you know, almost kind of using it, the screen as like it's a means to an end where it's like education doesn't necessarily need to be on screen. Uh, there's a lot of learnings that, that you could apply to work as well, to business, where it's like, hey, if you're working on a strategy, sometimes stepping away from your computer, your laptop, your phone can actually help you ideate and think and strategize and then come back and utilize the resources that you have at your fingertips to then build that strategy. It's almost like a, that that insight that you have there is something that isn't only applicable to education, it's also applicable to work. So I really love that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have A1 sheets and big green markers and black markers and red markers out all the time scribbling and getting away from the computer or step outside, walk my dog now, working from home. Yeah, I mean, I you'll do a lot of your best thinking not looking at your screen. You know, go talk to people, go grab a coffee, chat to someone, grab a marker, scribble on a piece of paper. Yeah, you'll, if, if it, yeah, you'll do a lot. I, anyway, will do a lot better thinking to solve a lot more problems and think of a lot better ideas when I'm in that kind of um, mindset. Definitely walking the dog for me is my one. That's like, <laughs> I feel sorry for my dog sometimes because if I'm stuck on a problem, I'll end up like walking him for like an hour and a half and his legs are like. <laughs> keep walking. I've got, I've got a really good idea coming. Just keep walking. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but, you know, you mentioned that, like, obviously you're working from home at the moment. A lot of us are still working from home. A lot of schools went remote recently and had to lean on tech uh, to continue education. Um, have, have you noticed that, that, that COVID has 
shifted attitudes and 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 changed people's perception of the role of technology in education and if it has like has it has it shifted it completely or has it just increased the speed to which people believe that we need to start focusing on the, the role of technology in education I, I think the best way to answer that is just to say yeah we've taken a huge leap forward I think the last two years or whatever it might be now of COVID, I, you, you lose track of time with this, this whole COVID thing. Um, I think it's fair to say, you know, each year has been about five years worth of what would have been development outside of remote learning. Like teachers have had to get a lot more hands-on with the likes of, you know, stuff like Google Classroom, which two years ago seemed an unnecessary complication to a lot of teachers. Now they're like, oh, okay, this is actually going to cut back in my workload, make me allow me to manage my class a lot easier. And this is really pleasant. So now they've seen that. Um, so now it's a case of, you know, getting back into the classrooms, whenever this, this whole COVID thing officially goes away. So it's kind of gone away now, I think. Um, and teachers are bringing the skills back into the classroom. So people are still, you know, adjusting that, are we back in the classrooms full time now? And tech skills are coming back in with them. So it's going to be the next year. I think next year is going to be a really interesting year and really exciting year to you know, build on the skills they've learned, build on the, um, the barriers that they've overcome. You know, a, a lot of that just being kind of confidence, kind of giving it a go and seeing, okay, it's not that bad. It's just a boogeyman. Um, you know, it's when you actually, there's, there's no boogeyman you think there is, but you go walk outside the dark and realize, okay, there's nothing there. It's fine. Uh, and I, I think a lot of tech was that. Um, your starting point, but then it allows your know, schools like, like the ones we work with to very quickly start looking to what's next, what they can do. Now we've overcome this, you know, as it, Muhammad Ali, his quote, it's not the mountains in the distance, it's the pebble in your shoe that, that, that stops you. So now we've got rid of the pebble out of our shoe, it's time to walk toward those mountains. Um, you know, something we're, we're, we're rolling out now, which we're like incredibly excited about, I mentioned earlier, is our student portal. And what the student portal does is actually lets the kids ask maybe two years ago, maybe a bit of, bit of a leap for teachers because they still have to give the kids access to the iPads or the Chromebooks, whatever they have. They still have to have a basic understanding of what the kids are going to be doing. But now, now they have now they've overcome that little stone in their shoe. Now they're happy to give the kids the devices and the kids can now, go, we can teach the kids directly anything from Google Workspace to coding, uh, creating eBooks, movies. And it, so we've, yeah, we're, we're now looking at climbing, climbing those mountains in the distance. So, so it's, getting, it's getting pretty exciting. That's fantastic to hear. And what could uh, happen at a government level to help capture this opportunity and to keep moving this forward? Um, actually, I wrote about this in an article recently. So the, the three key points I gave at the time were uh, proper financial investment, uh, ongoing training and support for teachers and students, and a proactive and positive approach to monitoring progress in the schools. So I mean, just to go back on that, proper financial investment uh, number one, I guess, kind of explains itself. Schools do need to have investment there in infrastructure. They need to actually have the devices for the students. They need to have whiteboards. They need to have broadband that works. Um, so so that, that's something that needs to be uh, happening on an ongoing basis. Um, training and support for teachers and students. Like I said, 82% of teachers 
said that they felt they received either no training at all for technical skills or not enough technical training. Um, and, you know, up until our own port I mentioned there a moment ago, there actually was very little direct supports for students if your school wants to, you know, go and learn a, a diverse curriculum, you know, involving, let's say, Google or Office, uh, a coding term, a term on a different piece of software, because typically these things just give you um, your programs for their own, for their own, a full diverse curriculum so our student portal now gives that access eventually so ongoing training and support for teachers and students we need to really take take that seriously and and put the investment in that the infrastructure in place for that and then third of all i said it was a proactive and positive approach to monitoring progress in the schools it's a mouthful Uh, i put the word proactive and positive in because i have been in schools uh, and a lot of teachers listening to this will say oh Oh God, not more monitoring um, and not more progress monitoring. Because that can, if it's not, not done in a proactive and positive way, it is the you know painful uh, box ticking exercises to show you've done something rather than actually doing it. You spend all the time proving you're doing it. So I've been in those schools and I think it's the worst thing in the world for education. So we need to figure out proactive and positive ways to do it. I mean, to pick one tiny example will be uh, an initiative by the Irish government in recent years, which is called the Digital Clusters, where they uh, a group of, group of schools would get together, pitch an idea using technology, uh, so they become a digital cluster. And then the government will then fund that idea and they will give them money for hardware, for training, for whatever they need over a 12, 24 month period. And, the, and they'll go and make it. And the school during that, that period of time has to you know, show progress, how they're moving toward their goal. So like, there is a fantastic example of monitoring progress. Um, so I, I, think, I think we need to be a lot more clever about how we're doing it, that we you know we're not just the first of all, we're giving money to schools, but second of all, we're not just giving them money to go spend on whatever they want, because at the end of the day, technology in particular does need a lot of expertise into what you're buying, and that can be a difficult decision for schools. So I think they need support around what they're going to spend it on, and then there needs to be um, proactive and positive monitoring on how they spend it, how they're using it. Because uh, at the end of the day, what we want here is these kids coming out of school ready for the jobs market. Wow, that is very comprehensive there. I love that. And, you know, let's just say if um, there's somebody working in the tech industry right now who's listening to this and thinking, I'd love to, like, help kind of move this forward. What are some of the things that they should be thinking about? Is it like lobbying the governments to kind of move in this direction? Is it supporting the governments with, like, uh, resources like if I'm going to say Google, like let's just say Chromebooks and that kind of thing. Because I imagine, I imagine like tech companies, if, if we're talking about an 85 million worker shortfall, tech companies will be one of the first groups to benefit if education is done in the right way, surely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think I'm going to have the uh, silver bullet answer for this one. I'm afraid. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, they, they will all they will all benefit. Like I said, the I mentioned earlier on the Dyson University. Even with Dyson University, those those uh, graduates don't have to go and work for Dyson. Dyson just a lot of them will. Um, so I I don't know. I, I suppose it's speaking with governments. 
um, is speaking with, with, with the relevant people in, in the different countries you know, as to how they can help. I think, actually, I think we, I may have just answered both of our questions there, is they don't know. They have to ask. They don't know. You don't know what, what a government needs or what schools need. You, ha- you have to ask. Uh, and it's going to be different in country to country. There could, there could be stuff that could be really beneficial that might seem small to them that, that they, they, they could do. Um, uh, it could be you know, kids coming in to visit, you know, inspiring visitors going into schools. Who knows what it could be, but I will say that uh, the tech companies themselves, no offense, guys, are not the ones who know. Uh, the ones who know are, the, I don't know, the, the ones who know are the schools, the educa- boards of education, um, you know, di- different local education bodies. They're, they're the ones to speak to. Um, just, I'm sure, like in Ireland, for instance, there is. There is um, different uh, education centres connected to schools. You, you can fund projects in those schools, in, in those education centres. There's lots of, lots of ways you could do it, but I guess get the conversation started. Let them know what you have available, whether it's expertise, time, money, whatever, whatever it might be. Uh, get the message out there and get chatting to people and get involved. Because you're right, it is, it is something that's going to affect, affect them in a... In a in an economic way, they do need to have these graduates coming through. So the more everyone can be involved, the better. We need to take this really seriously, everybody. I, I love that. And, you know, thinking about this audience as well, like for the uh, Digital Irish podcast, you know, we have a lot of people that are not only working in tech, but they're aspiring entrepreneurs themselves. And some of whom may be listening to this and may be thinking, right, well, I'm passionate about education. I want to push this forward as well like do you have any advice for those who may be thinking about uh how do i how do i jump into this and how do i help push this forward um yeah i I think i'm gonna end up combining two answers i've given before i think one is that uh you know i came here to where i am now from being a teacher from being a consultant uh to a deep deep knowledge i've worked with thousands of teachers i've been in hundreds of classrooms and hundreds of schools so you know i i didn't just think of an idea i thought would be good in schools uh I, these you know these little teachers will benefit from this you know <laughs> I, I was out there i could see what, what, the, what their pain was and i could see you know there has to be a way of, of re- relieving this pain alleviating this pain so i think you have to know your audience and i think if, you, if you're not somebody who's steeped in schools and education if your only experience is you being in school I think you need to get out there and get talking to people uh, pretty quickly, test your ideas, you know, build less scalable versions of, of what you want to do, test in a couple of classrooms, see what students think, see what teachers think. But yeah, get, get your hands dirty, get your boots to the ground. That's the only way to do it because you need to understand uh, the extremely complex world of, of education. Um, yeah, I, I think that's probably the most important thing to do is, is to understand it all. And yeah, then be prepared for some hard work. Fantastic stuff. Well, uh, Gavin, I, I just have to thank you firstly for just talking through all of this and uh, providing your insights and uh, just hearing the story of like where where you kind of started from, like from this area of frustration and now you're working towards, um, you know, really solving challenges that have major implications for the future of the workforce, future of like economies. So um, just fascinating to hear from you. Um, one last question for me. Uh, one last question for me. What is next for Olus? Like what can we look forward to in 2022? 
Um, well, big things. Uh, right now, we're actually, our, our next big thing is um, more personal to us rather than the industry, which is we're actually uh, we're raising some money at the moment. So we're uh, our next big thing is is speaking with, with the right investors and taking on a, a big um Big investment is going to really help us, you know, hit, hit the rocket boosters for the year ahead. So I guess that's our next big thing. Um, and then with that, we are going to be really our, our student portal. I mentioned a few times, the student portal is, is our big game changer. You know, we've done this for such a long time. Uh, we've trained teachers for such such a long time. Our teacher portal is really innovative and it increases the training impact and really gets more teachers teaching. At the end of the day, the stats I said before, 82% of teachers still feel they are uh, haven't received enough tech training. The reality is, until we created the student portal, there was no way even we could say to any principal or head teacher or parent that, look, we guarantee every single kid in your school is going to get to learn core digital skills. Now we can. So the student portal is, is huge for us. And uh, I touched on our, our pathway to computer science earlier, because the great thing now is, to go with the student portal is kind of our foundation stone and as you filter upwards for the parents and the kids who want you know, the higher level of tech skills that you're just not going to get in school we, we, we have we have we have that as well that's already there but we're gonna we're gonna build that even more with the portal like i said before that was largely offline until the merger with olis through academy of code so now we have our, our student portal this is the one thing you can probably hear my voice i'm a little bit excited about it's amazing it's it's a game changer so it's it's getting that out there um and then uh yeah and, and, and getting even more people then in, into our, our our higher level skills program as well so yeah really excited about the year ahead uh, yeah, it's going to be great. Fantastic. Uh, Gav, thank you so much again. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, Dave. It has, it's been great fun. Thank you. And that is it for this episode. A thank you again to Gavin Malloy for sharing his insights into the importance of digital education and skills development in schools. This is also our last episode of 2021. Firstly, I want to thank you all for listening over the course of this year. We are going to be back again in January with new episodes, specifically tackling a lot of the questions that I brought up at the beginning around what the future of employee well-being, real estate, support services are in the world post-COVID. Until then, though, Happy holidays and have a fantastic new year.